the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. So welcome to episode six of the second series of the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean, joined today by Paul Gosling. Paul, how's things? Fine as ever, Jared. And you? Good, man. Right. Dead on, hey. Dead on. Struggling away in the house. Just like the rest of us. So today's interview, Paul, we have Deirdre Heenan. And Deirdre and yourself talk about social care, which follows up on the conversation that we released last week with Professor Jim Dornan on health care. But you went into a lot of depth on the social care issue and starting with the fact that social care is often seen as the poor relation to healthcare. Yes, and of course it's important to put this in the context of the fact that Deirdre is one of the most respected commentators mm. on social policy in Northern Ireland. She's a professor of social policy and she's a joint author of a really the definitive study into health and social care back in 2011. And yes, um, you know, I took advantage of the fact that Deirdre is a real expert on social care. And one of the things that I think is particularly interesting that we discussed is the fact that uh, as someone who's English, who comes from Great Britain, uh, you have the political conversation over there that if only we had an integrated health and social care system, all our problems would be over. Well, guess what? In Northern Ireland, we do have an integrated system and all your problems are not over because actually, Mm. however you structure it, it's very difficult to argue for more funding for social care and if that means less funding for acute health services. And that is a fundamental problem, however you structure it. And that, to me, was one of the most interesting parts of the conversation I had with Deirdre. Yeah. And leading on from that then, Deirdre and yourself talked about principles and values about how we value people in society and we have an aging population and it's how we value our older people and how we treat them is going to be really important as we move forward. Absolutely and in a sense that also reflects as why it is that we put more money into acute services and less money into social care because actually that in itself is a value judgment isn't it and Mm. yes uh, and you've seen the number of people that have died in social care home settings uh, as part of COVID-19 and that also is is arguably uh, a value judgment so yes there are questions but also it's not just about whether we are providing the social services that we need to. It's also about the efficiency of the health service. Because if you haven't got appropriate services for discharging patients, many of whom are elderly, also though many of whom are disabled, and actually we're learning from the COVID-19 crisis that there's damage to organs quite often from people who've survived COVID-19, a lot of those will need ongoing social care after discharge. Unless you have the services available, the settings available to discharge patients, if you don't have that, then you're going to have an inefficient health service where you have too many people that don't need to be in hospital kept there simply because there's nowhere else for them to go. So the system we have is not really a very efficient system as well as actually ultimately not being a very caring system. Well, let's hear the full conversation that you had with Deirdre. To what extent is the broader healthcare crisis in Northern Ireland the result of, of failures in social care? Because obviously we've got issues about the blocking of discharges. Uh, we've also got issues perhaps about the, the lack of preventative care for older people or people that might be in need of social care. Uh, well, could you put this in a bit of context for us? 
I suppose what I would start off by saying is uh, it is important to say that uniquely in uh, the UK and Northern Ireland, we have an integrated system of health and social care. So uh, basically, you would imagine, therefore, that we would have a seamless system, a one-stop shop, and that is different from the system that uh, exists in the rest of Britain, where you have local councils responsible for social care, and you then have the NHS. So it is important to say that at the outset, that we do have a, a different system, and one that theoretically you think would work better, that you, um, would allow for a a better performance in a system overall. We don't actually know how far that is the case because social care has very much been the poor relation in terms of health and social care in Northern Ireland. And the reality is we have very little research and data to um, base our assumptions on. So much of what we say about the integrated system is really based on assumptions. So I suppose that's the first thing. The second thing to say is I think we need to think about health and social care in Northern Ireland in terms of the underpinning values. So the vast majority of people accept and want the NHS to be free at the point of delivery. Uh, many are happy to pay increased taxation or feel that the taxation system needs to be changed so that we can adequately fund the system and certainly have transfers within the system so that those are less able to pay will still have the same health care as anyone else. That's, that's one of our key principles. Most people also believe that social care should be free, but there's a lot of confusion out there in the public in terms of, well, we have this integrated system of health and social care, yet we know that health care is free at the point of delivery. We're just not really share, sure about social care. We, we don't know when you pay for it. We don't know if you pay for it. We don't know how much you should pay for it. But largely the population accept that we have an aging population, that the cost is becoming a huge issue and that people can't really plan for their social care unless they have a clear idea about, well, when am I going to be asked to pay? How much am I going to be asked to pay? And maybe we need to have a conversation about insurance schemes for social care. So to put it in some context, I think there is a, a knowing that social care is an issue but I hope that if we keep not discussing it and fudging it, that we'll be able to get by. But the reality is we look at the system, the system is in crisis for all sorts of reasons. We haven't had the discussion and we're not really in a position where we want to face the reality that we have an aging population. We have a system that's not fit for purpose and we really need to think about how this system can be completely transformed and what principles will underpin that. You've touched on some really important themes there, Deirdre. Uh, and as an English person living in Northern Ireland, I'm very struck by the difference in terms of uh, social care being uh, within the, the healthcare crisis, uh, constitutional, the structural system. Um, and in Britain, it's often seen that actually, if only you had an integrated system, then things would be solved. Whereas we know from Northern Ireland, that's not the case. I mean, what people have said to me in the past when I've asked them about this is, well, even within Northern Ireland, the money still goes to what might be regarded as the more exciting services. Acute care always trumps social care. I mean, do you think that's a valid criticism of this, this current system? I think that's very valid and myself and my colleague Professor Derek Farrell have undertaken extensive research in this and I suppose there is a frustration for us that on the one hand across Britain the idea is that if only we had structural integration that would be the holy grail 
and it would address issues around hospital discharge, um, a piecemeal system, the blockages in one system in relation to another, and you would have one employer and you wouldn't have these financial issues around shared budgets. The reality is we just haven't found that to be the case in Northern Ireland, although, as I, I said earlier, we haven't really got a wealth of research. It is astonishing, given the importance of health and social care here, that so little research attention has been paid to it. There's a, an assumption that, that this uh, structurally integrated system will provide better outcomes, but very little evidence of it. And the reality is, I suppose, what we say in our research is, Yes, a structurally integrated system is important, but it's also very important to have a culturally integrated system. So it does sound a bit anecdotal, but you can go into health and social care trusts in Northern Ireland and it almost feels like turn right for health, left for social care. There are divisions within the system and certainly social care is the Cinderella of the system. And we know of examples where well, quite frankly, when there's blood on the carpet in the acute system, the funds that social care have are going to be plundered to block and, and deal with a, a gap. But that money isn't returned, it isn't deemed to be as important. And I suppose another way you have to think about it is who are the people who are advocating for social care in Northern Ireland? So we have the BMA, we have all sorts of royal colleges who advocate for people in primary care. In terms of social care, it's harder to think of a loud, effective voice who advocates for the needs of largely older and vulnerable people whose voice is widely recognised, taken very seriously in terms of policy. In Northern Ireland, we have the Patient and Client Council. Well, quite frankly, I believe they are largely toothless. That may be because of the way that they have been configured. They get their money from the Department of Health. So to what extent can we expect that they will be a loud voice speaking about the needs of older people and particularly their social care needs? I mean, it, you make it sound as if we don't have a very rational way of allocating resources within the healthcare system in Northern Ireland. And it reminds me of an interview I did a few days ago with someone from one of the dementia, dementia charities who said how strange it was that if you were suffering from Alzheimer's, the level of research and funding for your illness was much lower than if you were suffering from uh, brain cancer. And perhaps we have a problem that we just don't allocate resources sufficiently rationally across different needs. I think the difficulty is if you try to follow the funding or you try to assess what the level of funding is and what formula have been used to allocate funding, you find yourself very confused because it isn't a straight pass to say, well, why was this funded? Why was something else not funded? And on the one hand, you might say we need a clearer system that works for all. The other thing we know about social care is it's very much based on local needs, that no two people, no two individuals will have the same level of needs. It will depend on your family circumstances, your geographical circumstances, and also your individual health and social care needs. Um, and many, it seems to me that much of the resource distribution happens at a high level happens at a central level. We have this commissioning through the Health and Social Care Board. How far that can take account of needs of someone living in rural Fermanagh as opposed to inner city Belfast, it's just really not clear how decisions are made, how you can appeal decisions. 
and then how families can make their decisions around who's going to do what, what level of additional care will we need, what level of care will we need to buy in, because it isn't clear who's going to get what, for how long, and why are they going to get it. There's also, though, this cultural issue which you touched on as well, which is the fact that it's clear in the North that Healthcare is essentially within the public sector, it's a public service, and yes, some people will queue jump, especially when we've got such long queues, such long waiting lists and waiting times, but broadly, people rely on the NHS for healthcare, but it isn't as clear-cut in social care, uh, and it's not clear in the same cultural way, ethical way, that social care is, is a public service in the way that the, the health service is. No, it isn't. And maybe this will come further to light around this current pandemic when people start to think about who's delivering the care and how do we value those people and where has social care been in this debate and why have we kind of largely ignored the elephant in the room? So to go back to the old social policy principles of universality versus selectivity, most people believe that the NHS should be a universal service free at the point of delivery. They are slightly more confused about the issue of social care. Should all of our social care needs be free? Or at what point do we say over a certain income you have to pay for it? If it's an older person and they're living in a property that they own, but their parents feel that, or, or their children feel that they should inherit it, what do we do then? And certainly when we were doing some of the research around uh, benefits, like attendance allowance, for example, and we would have said to individuals, you know, in terms of paying for your care, you are in receipt of attendance allowance. Couldn't you use that to buy in some care? And the typical answer would have been, oh, no, no, I save that. I keep that for the Christmas presents. Um, so there's a kind of cultural disconnect between our welfare system our social care system and who's paying for what and what that money is supposed to be going towards. And I think we need to make it much clearer that when money is being spent on social care or being allocated towards social care, that that is what it's for and that is where it should be paid. And at the same time, we need really to think about the social care workforce. So we know that social work, um, certainly within the last two decades, has been professionalised. We now have professional standards, and we have a um, professional body, we have code of ethics. But social care, much of social care is delivered by a workforce that is undervalued. Given the minimum wage, and sometimes less than the minimum wage, we, we're very aware of all these debates around a 15-minute visit, what can be achieved in a 15-minute visit, um, there are issues around the regulation of the workforce. So some of these people are going in and undertaking very intimate tasks with vulnerable people. How assured can we be around um, their training, um, the safeguarding issues, the issue of risk? So there are so many issues that I think we now need to unpack around social care about, as you say, is it part of the welfare state? Is it part of the healthcare system? Should it be universal? Should it be selective? But a huge issue in the middle of all that is the workforce and how it is that for many people who are interested in caring and would like a career in that area, when they look at it, they say, well, actually, I would be better off working my local Tesco's because I would get better terms and conditions 
and be treated probably better as an employee than I would if I worked in health and social care. Surely we must address that. That's a very important point. I remember a friend of mine telling me he was chair of a scrutiny committee uh, at a council in England where they had uh, privatised under legislative requirement, they had privatised the the, uh, the residential care homes and they reviewed uh -huh. as, as, as a, a scrutiny committee where the savings had been achieved from that privatisation and they found that the savings had been entirely achieved by cutting the terms and conditions of employment of the staff. Yeah. Yes, and, and indeed, you know, if, if we are serious about wanting people to go into social care, to, be, to give social care prestige, to have a career progression in it, then we have to think about a level of professionalisation. As I said earlier, these people are delivering vital services to our most vulnerable and very valued members of the community. And why is it that we have such a, a lax system in one sense? Um, we have very, very, very poor workforce information data in Northern Ireland. So it's actually difficult to say who is working where, for how long. We do know that it tends to be quite a, a transient workforce as well, and that causes all sorts of difficulties in trying to build up rapport with individuals, trying to understand their needs. We don't really have a robust regulatory framework. Um, what skills are we looking for? What skills do we value? Uh, we have the issue of working in the public sector and then working in the private sector. And I suppose the question really we've got to ask ourselves around this whole issue of social care and workforce is what do we value in this society? What are our underpinning values and how then do we see these reflected in the workforce and the work that we're asking them to do and the terms and conditions? And I think a lot of this again has been brought to light with the, the current health pandemic sorry, where we are it's been brought to the fore every day of the week, the crucial work that is being delivered by people and yet how they are valued within our society. And of course, it's really important to stress the point that when people are not properly paid and when we've had this process of cutting pay for people in the social care sector, then actually that makes the workforce uh, more transient and you break those linkages between long-term long social care workers and the people they're looking after. Yeah, exactly, and, and that is important. And I think the other debate I suppose we have to have is we're having this discussion now about social care and we know that there's demographic change. We know there are increasing numbers of people with disabilities living longer, which is great. It's a cause for celebration. We know that by and large, particularly through transforming your care, what are the principles there? We know that people want to live independently and we know that people want personalization of care. But we have to put all that alongside um, a debate that's going on within social policy about retrenchment in terms of the public sector, um, austerity, uh, cutting back, uh, minimum wage, and the two just don't marry. And I think those are the sorts of debates we've got to have to say, if we're really saying that in the long run, people are going to live longer, that's a cause for celebration. What do we want? We want people to live the best quality of life as is possible. Those people, when asked, by and large, by the Northern Ireland Life and Time survey, by any other survey in Northern Ireland, say they value their independence and they value the fact that they have input into decision-making. How can we marry all of those things together in a way that it 
is a social care system that is properly funded, that is sustainable, that is long term and addresses some of those issues that we've already raised. But this, these questions do feed into wider debates around culture and the structure of society. We've seen as part of COVID-19 the different outcomes in different countries where there's different cultures in terms of whether people continue to live in old age with their families or whether they go into residential care homes. And a lot of these things come down as we started the conversation in terms of the cost of social care. And in a sense, we're expecting residential care to be too cheap, too affordable, when actually it's a high-cost service. And perhaps this feeds into other questions about how we see things like wealth tax and whether we can reasonably expect as a society that parents can necessarily leave their main asset to their families without the families having to pay for social care if they are going into residential care. Well, I think what we go back to here are the old debates about people saying who should pay, how much should I pay, and where is the fairness and the equality in the system. So in Northern Ireland for years, we've had debates where people would have said, you know, I'd have been better off not working. I saved all my life. I bought this house. Now I find the government's going to take this house from me. And people struggle with issues around fairness and equality when those sorts of um, examples are put before them. So I think we've got to have that conversation to say, this is how much you will get from the state, regardless of your income. And after that, there's an expectation that you will pay, and that may involve selling some of your assets. Um, and we will come to some agreement, but I think in Northern Ireland, we haven't even got to the stage where we openly want to discuss those sorts of issues, because that takes us into issues around housing, um, and, and knowing that social care isn't something that you can discuss in terms of a policy vacuum. You can't really discuss social care without discussing the National Health Service. And really, can you have a discussion about social care without having a discussion about housing and the structure of housing in Northern Ireland, the implications of the right to buy, people who were told to become part of a property-owning democracy, and then a number of years later being told by the same uh, style of government that you have to sell your home. So there are complicated, vexed issues at the heart of this. Sometimes I think it goes back to when the welfare state was established and all the furore around the National Health Service, and not surprisingly, when you look back at those early documents, very little was said about social care. Uh, it was barely discussed. Some of the community care legislation really didn't come to the fore in the UK until the 60s. And prior to that, it was well, people didn't live um, as long. Uh, there was a much shorter life expectancy, but there was also a cultural idea that families looked after their own um, and that people were cared for in institutions or within the family. We now have an entirely different family structure. We have an entirely different employment structure. We have huge difference in terms of gender and gender roles. And again, I think that wasn't discussed at the outset in terms of social care. And it's something that we are now missing in terms of the policy landscape. So we're not really sure where social care sits in terms of this whole universal welfare state. Uh, what we do know now is it's, it's this mix between the private, the formal, the informal and the public sector. And unless we discuss it, what we're going to end up with is the worst of all worlds, 
uh, I think really, if I, if I were to say anything about social care, now is the time to have the honest discussion about how will we fund this in the future. I mean, the very worst thing, I think, is people to be sitting around worrying about what's going to happen to them or indeed what's going to happen to their loved ones in old age. What if they can't afford decent care? And remember that all of those scandals around Winterburn View, Dunmurray Manor, Muckamore Abbey, questions about the quality of care, questions about the inspection regime, people worrying that they will be neglected, that their loved ones will be neglected. I think we really have to, again, accept that that is uh, something that is now in the consciousness of the public here. And what do we do to allay those fears? But as you say, one of the policy options is to move towards a form of social care insurance. Uh, the yeah. industry is very keen on that. The ins insurance industry is very keen on that. But of course, when John Major floated this for the UK uh, X number of years ago, the response was very, very negative. People just don't want to do that. Well, it's also when Theresa May floated the idea about um, selling homes and, and having to give up homes, people were horrified because we do live in very much an individualistic style society where people believe that they should be looking after them and their family and their assets should remain within the family group. We have very much moved away from the idea of society. I know Margaret Thatcher famously said there was no society. But it goes back to uh, an earlier comment around, I think we have to start at the starting point of saying, what are our values and what are our principles? And if people living longer is a cause for celebration, then surely what we're saying to them is we wouldn't want anyone living in a society where they're actually worried about what sort of care will I have? Will have I have any say in this care? What will the quality of care be? Um, and would it actually be better if I wasn't living longer? Um, that doesn't say much for a, a well-developed society that people would actually be asking themselves those type of questions. I have just finished some research in a rural area. And in, in the rural area, particularly amongst farming communities, there is a huge fear about going into residential care for all sorts of reasons, but largely because... These farming families have lived in the same house all their lives, have lived on the same farm all their lives. It's all that they know. It's what they value. It's what makes life worth living, according to them. Now, if it came to the stage that they had to go into residential home and move away from everything that they knew, that they talked about that in, in terms of it being worse than death, that death would be better. I mean, if that doesn't stop people in their tracks, I don't know what does but it's associated with a lack of independence, a lack of dignity, giving up any financial privacy, any notion of privacy, giving up everything that has been valued to exist rather than to live. I don't think that's a system that we can really stand over in the 21st century. Now, we had the, the first Citizens' Assembly in Northern Ireland looking at social care, and I presume you've looked at the, the, the report yeah. very carefully. It called for a strong leadership of transformation. Did, do you, what did you think of the recommendations that came out of the Citizens' Assembly? I, I thought the idea was good, but to be honest, I think those debates around social care need to be led by experts that you need to have the people who are at the forefront of policy making, 
you need to have the organisations that are advocating for older people. And whilst the principals may have been right, I think you need to have the right voices there who understand that you cannot just wish for motherhood and apple pie. If you're going to put forward a certain system, then you have to understand the political realities, the backlash that you're going to get from people, how are you going to deal with that? You're going to have to deal with insurance companies, private insurance companies. So I just think that a lot of people who are talking about social care are well-meaning, but may not be that well-informed about what the realities of this system are. And I don't mean that in any patronising way, because social care is extraordinarily complex and complicated when you start talking about uh, entitlements, when you start having a sliding scale or you're moving from an idea of something that is universally available to something that people are entitled to according to a selective regime or once you start bringing in any idea of means testing then you really need to be expert in your field to say someone will always say but that won't work or have you thought of the knock-on effect on or there will be a way of getting around that so I think it's a good idea. It was a good idea to start the debate. But I think in Northern Ireland, we really need a full-on policy review around social care. And that may be ironic, me saying that, because on the other hand, I'm always saying we've had 20 reviews of health care. We don't need any more. But if you look at those reviews of health care, uh, they actually said very little about social care. Social care wasn't to be reviewed by Ben Goa. It only came in as an afterthought when pressure groups said, hold on a moment here, there's no social care in this. Um, And it does really bring the point home to you that you can have a review of an integrated health and social care system and you don't actually think there's a need to talk about social care as if you can divorce one from the other. Yes, I was going to raise exactly that point. And in a sense, it... Uh, we've been talking as if perhaps or it would be possible to listen to us and think that we're talking about old people. But in fact, of course, social care deals with a yeah. much wider part of society than the elderly. And perhaps yeah. with COVID-19, we'll, uh, we can see that there's quite a lot of instances where uh, vital organs are, are damaged as part of the uh, impact of COVID-19. Perhaps there will be an increase in the number of people that are not elderly that will need ongoing social care who who shouldn't be in hospital but aren't actually going to be able to live independent lives in the future. Yeah, and that's going to raise a, a whole other number of issues, and you're quite right, social care is not just about older people. Uh, the majority of social care is adult social care, but there are all sorts of people involved in the social care system. And what we have uh, witnessed across other areas of Britain is really that whole push on the idea of personalisation, that social care isn't something that's done to you but social care is something that you as a user are co-producing that you're planning that you're designing that you have independence that you have the ability to say well actually i don't really like that or i would like it a different way or if you're not doing it someone is advocating for you i think another problem which will come out just given the examples that you have cited around COVID 19 well we will really see that in northern ireland we are lacking that advocate's voice who is there banging the drum for people with disabilities for people who are vulnerable and saying no this is not acceptable this level of care is not acceptable the quality of service isn't appropriate i have real concerns about the access to care um, and i don't want in any sense 
that uh, social care should be viewed as good social care if it's cheap, uh, if we can do it on the cheap, if we can deliver it uh, in a less expensive way than it might be within institutional care. In the end, we are told repeatedly that health and social care systems should be built around the user, the user's needs and carer's needs, and their voice should be heard and heard loudly. I'm not convinced that culturally within Northern Ireland we have got to that stage yet. And the reason why I say that is when when you look at the waiting lists in, in health in Northern Ireland, the question that is very often asked in other regions of Britain is, well, why do people in Northern Ireland put up with that? Why are people not out on the streets saying this is absolutely shocking? It's appalling. It's not good enough. Because I think there's still a kind of view here that to get something like the NHS and not have to pay for it is so highly valued that it would be wrong to start saying, well, I don't think the system is good enough. Or if you started to say, I don't think the system is good enough, it would be deemed to be an implied criticism in the workforce. And so with social care, I think people feel that the people who are working in it are working very hard, are dedicated to the people that they are working with. And so criticism is deemed to be a criticism of them. But the reality is the whole system is disjointed, is piecemeal, it isn't properly regulated. There aren't, um, I just don't think we've had the the proper in-depth conversation. First of all, saying, ideally, what would we like? Would we agree on this in terms of uh, social policy principles? And when we've agreed our underpinning principles, how then are we going to design deliver this and pay for it. Now, Deirdre, uh, Bengoa was led by one of the world's leading experts on healthcare provision. You are probably Northern Ireland's leading expert in terms of uh, evaluating social care, and yet you clearly feel frustrated that you can't influence the system. So what can we do that does actually transform and influence the way the services are delivered here? I do think there is frustration. I mean, I said this at the outset. It's astonishing to me that health and social care, which are huge parts of uh, life in Northern Ireland, uh, affect so many people in terms of workforce, in terms of our lives, our quality of lives, that there is so little evidence, detailed research, so that when people go to make assertions to say, well, look, this is working somewhere else. Have a look at what happens in Sweden. Have a look at what happens in France. The difficulty is you are actually very limited because you can't produce the evidence to support the argument. And I think a problem historically in Northern Ireland has been that when we have funded uh, health and social care or um, health research, that has been taken to mean health as in drugs, as in pharmacy, as in prescription, and very little in terms of funding longitudinal studies around social care. So you may get something that occasionally will have a module on um, Northern Ireland Life and Times or we will have some study coming out from some organisation, perhaps the Northern Ireland Older Persons Commissioner will produce a study. But the reality is, in terms of a long-term policy priority and provision, it isn't there. And I think maybe we need to think about saying, the system of our government, is it realistic that one minister is in control of health and social care. Half of the devolved budget is under their bailiwick and they're being asked to look 
of the whole system. Now, it might seem counterintuitive to say we have an integrated system, but on the other hand, I'm suggesting that maybe we need a Minister for Social Care. But perhaps we at least need a junior Minister for Social Care so that that issue can be to the forefront of people's minds, forefront of policymakers, so that we can start to have those difficult conversations. I think if you went out on the street and you asked most people, what, what does the healthcare system mean to you? They could give you an articulate answer around the NHS and hospitals and GP services and what that means to them. If you ask them about social care and describe social care, what does it mean to you? I think you would get a much more um, piecemeal answer where people really wouldn't have that strong understanding of what do we mean by that and can you draw a difference between formal care and informal care? Uh, and again, that's something that we haven't discussed at length, the whole system that is heavily reliant on informal care. Can we take that for granted going into the future? How far can we take it in, in for granted? So it's a very long-winded answer, but I suppose I think we are never going to have that really informed discussion until we have the champions for social care, the people standing up and standing up for people who are very often vulnerable, voiceless, the advocates saying, actually, this system is not fit for purpose. And I feel that it is my duty to say we can do much better, that w there doesn't appear also to be learning from the system. So when mistakes are made, how can we be assured that they will not happen again? How do you allay people's fears around scandals? How do you allay people's fear about the quality of care? How do we get away from the view that saying, uh, actually, we like community care, we support community care because we believe to be a cheaper option. Very often, good community care is not a cheaper option, but it is a better option. So, in many ways, I think in terms of policy in Northern Ireland, we value what we count and we count what we value. And we really need to get to a sense where we value social care. We value the care that we are providing for often the most vulnerable members of our population. Deirdre Heenan, thank you very much indeed. Okay, well, it was a really interesting conversation there with Deirdre. I find it particularly interesting around the cultural issue with health and social care, where it's about we need to start looking at the workforce as well as those that are delivering this and value them as importantly as we do other sectors of the health sector. That's right. It's not enough for us all to have gone out and applauded every Thursday evening at 8 o'clock without actually dealing with the working conditions. And there's mm. this long problem of the fact that not only are social care workers undervalued, they're also underpaid. Uh, the, uh, the peripatetic social workers typically are not paid for their travelling time. And we really do have to address the questions around how we treat social care workers and how we're going to properly pay them in the future. Because I think there's perhaps a sense, I hope there's a sense across society, having valued their work during the crisis, we can't go back to underpaying them after the crisis is over, as hopefully it will be one day. Yeah. And on the cost side of things, uh, residential care seems to take up a lot of the cost of uh, providing social care. And you've had a discussion around wealth tax and family assets and things like that as well, around who should pay for social care in the future. I think that's something that we really need to have the conversation about. Well, that's right. And, and uh, I, I think we're probably, as a society, going to come to the conclusion that one of the things we learn from the COVID-19 crisis 
is that we have to invest more in our health services. Clearly, we've got an ongoing crisis in terms of the waiting lists and waiting times in Northern Ireland. Um, and if we're going to do that, then that means we're going to have to spend more on healthcare, which then raises the question, if we're spending more on healthcare, how are we going to pay for the social care element? And does that mean that we need to reconsider wealth taxes in order that uh, the family assets go into providing elderly care? But of course, social care is not just about the elderly. It's also about people, many of whom are disabled. And as we improve healthcare services and quality, then you have more people that might in previous generations have died at a young age who can actually live much longer. Uh, and they will need intensive support which need it which comes with the cost okay and something that we've talked about on many podcasts before is giving citizens a greater say in things and particular using the model of the citizens assembly which has been so successful in the republic of ireland and the only citizens assembly that was held in northern ireland was on social care particularly for older people i was interested in Deirdre's comments around that that she doesn't seem too too big of a fan of the assembly as it was run well, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to have had the impact you might have hoped. Mm. I'd, I mean, uh, in, in the South, you had a really significant uh, influence over discussions around abortion and on same-sex marriage, and also, to a lesser extent, um, although it didn't hit the headlines, on the question of uh, environmental protection and the adoption of uh, carbon taxes. Uh, so it's a frustration, perhaps, that you haven't had the same impact from the Citizens' Assembly in Northern Ireland looking at social care, though the findings are clearly sensible findings. Mm, OK. Pretty sure there are reports out there for those that, that need to find it on that Citizens' Assembly. Paul, thank you for taking the time to interview Deirdre for this podcast, and thanks to Deirdre for meeting with you, even if it was virtually, thanks to COVID-19. So thank you for listening as well and thanks to the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland for funding this podcast and we'll be back in touch with you again soon. The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.